Okay, let's go to um, Doug Logan, Cyber Ninjas. You are going to give us your report. Ah, no need, Senator. We already have his report. And it was really funny. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Well, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California and Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. Maybe not Doug Logan of the Cyber Ninjas, but says (laughs) me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. I will uh, uh, welcome to the broadcast. See, I'm so excited. I just can't. (laughs) Hi, Desi Doyne. Hi. Uh, I will get to uh, follow up on our huge exclusive scoop on yesterday's broadcast, which has since now been confirmed by all of the other major national media. But you did hear it here first. You did uh, regarding the long awaited results of the so-called cyber ninjas so-called audit of the 2020 presidential and senatorial elections in Maricopa County, Arizona. I'll get to that momentarily, uh, during which, if you were listening to the show, yes, you did, uh, you learned those kind of hilarious results before anyone else in the country. But quickly, as we've uh, discussed in recent days, Democrats are now quibbling amongst themselves at the moment about Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda and what should or shouldn't be included in his proposed $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill that can be passed with a simple majority vote in the U.S. House, presuming all 50 senators who caucus with the Democrats can actually come to an agreement about what should be in the bill, which currently includes... Uh, among many other things, long overdue expansions of health care, child care, child tax credits, paid parental leave, education uh, like free pre-K and community college, and much, much more that makes up the Biden agenda, including landmark climate change initiatives such as the centerpiece plan in this um, in this proposal known as the Clean Electricity Performance Program, or CEPP. 
You may not have heard about it before, but I, well, hopefully you'll hear a lot more about it in the uh, in the years ahead. Hopefully it involves big financial incentives for utility companies to move quickly from dirty power generation to clean renewable energy and financial penalties for not doing so. So they get penalized if they don't, but they get a lot of whole, a whole lot of money if they do. Yes. That sound about right? Yes, it's actually a, a really well-designed program. We did a deep dive on it with David Roberts a couple of weeks ago. You yep. can look that up at bradblog.com and Correct. get more on that because it's really cool the way it's structured. Uh, currently, that is the center of Joe Biden's pledge to move the nation toward a 50% overall reduction in global warming greenhouse gas emission by 2030 and then to full net zero emissions by 2050. Now, can this plan be adopted, particularly with obstructionist Democrats like Joe Manchin, whose family makes a whole lot of money themselves from the fossil fuel industry in coal country, West Virginia? Well, that's one of the holdups by just a handful, really, of Democrats just Two in the Senate, a tiny handful in the House, uh, which currently the the majority of Democrats are completely unified about all of this in both chambers. But they are at a stalemate because of these so-called moderates uh, on the Build Back Better plan that they are hoping to try to work out. But presuming they can get these things worked out and they can adopt even if they're able to adopt the full Biden agenda as it is drafted right now, would even that be enough to avoid our dangerously worsening climate crisis uh, in, on this planet? I was going to say in this country, but on this planet. Some climate scientists and experts that we've talked to on the program say that while it may not be enough for a start, it's it's really an important start and that without... Without this program right now, humanity itself is cooked, literally. Uh, other scientists, however, like NASA's Dr. Peter Kalmus, says that even that best-case scenario for our plans in the U.S., even if we move ahead with that, it is not nearly enough to save us, even if the rest of the world joins the U.S., in a goal of net zero by 2050. In that case, then what? Well, Dr. Kalmus will join us here shortly to explain, since so much of what climate scientists like like him uh, have predicted in recent decades is now coming to pass, but it is coming to pass much, much sooner uh, than the scientists had previously predicted. So that's coming up in a second. But before we get to him, as noted, if you caught our previous broadcast, you probably know by now uh, we were the first uh, in the nation, as far as I can tell, to break some pretty huge news, uh, which a few hours after we got off air was finally matched by the rest of the national media, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, etc. But yes, you heard it here first, so you're welcome. <laughs> Uh, it, 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 it came, uh, our news uh, came even before this fun statement that was posted last night by the disgraced former president who tried and is still trying, in fact, to steal the 2020 election from the voters. This was published uh, to one of his political action committee websites, a statement from him on Thursday evening after it was announced by the U.S. House Select Committee that's examining the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. 
uh, after they had announced subpoenas for uh, records of four very close Trump advisors, including his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and his former senior White House advisor, Steve Bannon, the disgraced Steve Bannon, I should note, uh, subpoenas for their communications surrounding the attack on the Capitol. So this was statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. Ready for the statement? <clears throat> Interesting that the unselect committee of political hacks dropped their subpoena request the night before Arizona is expected to announce its findings from the forensic audit on voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election scam. This is what they do. This is what they are good at. But everybody will be watching Arizona tomorrow to see what the highly respected auditors and Arizona State Senate found regarding the so-called election. That statement from uh, Donald Trump apparently did not age very well because it has since been deleted. Oh. Yeah. What might uh, lead Trump to want to remove his comments about the Quote, findings from the forensic audit the, on voter fraud. The well-respected. <laughs> yes, by the highly respected auditors regarding what they and the Arizona State Senate, quote, found out regarding the so-called election in Arizona. Well, if you heard your friendly neighborhood broadcast on Thursday as we broke the news that everyone else in the media picked up several hours later. And by the way, I don't blame The New York Times for being late here. They don't have the type of resources that we do <laughs> here at Brad Blog World News Headquarters. Anyway, you probably know why Trump thought it was best to maybe hedge his bets and delete that, delete that statement and his praise for the, quote, highly respected auditors known as the cyber ninjas in Arizona to send that statement into the memory hole. Well... In fact, those highly respected auditors, the partisan conspiracy theorist cyber ninjas, confirmed that, in fact, their hand count of more than 2.1 hand-marked paper ballots tabulated by Dominion Voting System computers, originally finding that Trump had lost the 2020 election in Arizona, in fact, the hand count by the ninjas matched almost exactly with the results that were originally reported and certified by Maricopa County and the state last year. And as we reported yesterday before the rest, Trump lost by even more than was originally certified by Maricopa County, if you believe the ninjas hand count. Now, I needed to be a bit dodgy on the information that I was giving you yesterday uh, a bit general uh, in order to protect my sourcing at the time. But enough folks have now subsequently published various copies of the Cyber Ninja's draft reports, some of them with older dates, uh, some of them, uh, well, is all similar to the information that I had obtained. Uh, but now I can give you some more specifics that I couldn't yesterday. Even the ninjas note in their opening section of their three-volume report, quote, what has been found is both encouraging and alarming. On the positive side, there were no substantial differences between the hand count of the ballots provided and the official canvas results for the county. But what you won't find, uh, uh, unless you go all the way to volume three of the report buried way, way down, is the fact that not only was the ninja's hand count virtually identical to the original 
computer tally, but in fact, Donald Trump actually lost specifically 261 votes in the ninja count, while Joe Biden picked up 99 votes in that hand tally, increasing uh, Biden's uh, uh, more than 10,000 vote defeat of Donald Trump by an additional 360 votes. Similarly, in the only other race that the ninjas bothered to supposedly investigate, that would be the Senate race, because there as well, a Democrat won statewide. So those were the races that must have been fraudulent. Uh, even in the uh, Senate race, the margin of victory for Democrat Mark Kelly over Republican Martha McSally increased by 481 votes specifically, even though in that case, both candidates actually lost some votes in the hand count. Uh, the Republican McSally lost 541 votes, but uh, Mark Kelly lost only 60 votes. So this is a spectacular Backfire for the Donald Trump and his stop the steal crowd who were duped into sending in millions of dollars to support this so-called audit in Arizona and now all around the country where they're doing the same thing. Where I suspect we will see similarly disappointing results for the MAGA mob. Now, there were some other concerns that the ninjas claimed to have regarding questions about various ballots and that's what they tried to put up front in their report, and it is what they are putting up uh, up front right now in the presentation that they are giving as we go to air to the Arizona State Senate. But as far as I can tell and as, and as I've heard from experts, the bulk of those concerns could have been are likely explainable uh, and would have been explained to them had they bothered to ask any actual election experts which the ninjas are not. Some uh, some complaints about uh, some materials that they feel they did not receive from the county and some questions about some of the ballots. We'll see. We'll see if we'll see what rabbits they try to pull out of their hats at the uh, ongoing state senate presentation uh, which I was trying to watch. It was still ongoing, but over the last half hour or so apparently it has uh, the feed has crapped out. Yes. Much like the audit itself. But we will share anything newsworthy with you in the days ahead, uh, anything that comes out of that. But a few hours after we got off air last night, the Republican Maricopa County Board of uh, Board of Supervisors, which has, I think it's uh, five members, four of them are Republican. They tweeted out of their uh County uh, Supervisor's Twitter account breaking the AZ audit draft report from Cyber Ninjas confirms the county's canvas of the 2020 general election was accurate and the candidates certified as the winners did in fact win. Unfortunately, they note, the report is also littered with errors and faulty conclusions about how Maricopa County conducted the 2020 general election. Board of Supervisors Chair Jack Sellers, again a Republican, said in a statement about all of this that the Ninja's report shows, quote, the tabulation equipment counted the ballots as they were designed to do and the results reflect the will of the voters. That should be the end of the story. Everything else is just noise. In fact, the accuracy of the tabulation 
of hand-marked paper ballots by the Dominion uh, tabulators, uh, at least in these two races, was in fact confirmed by the conspiracy theorists themselves, the ninjas who had joined Trump and uh, the MAGA mob and pretending there was some great communist China, Cuba, dead Hugo Chavez of Venezuela plot, along with George Soros and Antifa to somehow hack the Dominion systems to steal the election from Donald Trump. Well, in Maricopa, uh, at least... Uh, the, the largest county in Arizona after a five month investigation costing at least six or seven million dollars. The ninjas found no such evidence of that. None. And they attempted to bury that part of their findings way back in volume three of the report, which is why I thought it was so important to get that information out. Indeed. Before their uh, dog and pony show at the Arizona Senate on uh, on Friday. Our reporting then was indeed subsequently validated several hours and confirmed several hours later after we got off air, uh, much of it after midnight Eastern time in many cases. The Arizona Republic reported uh, Arizona audit draft confirms Biden beat Trump in 2020. Fox 10 Phoenix reported draft election audit report finds Joe Biden won in Maricopa County by more votes than originally tallied. New York Times, after midnight, tweeted, Breaking news, Donald Trump was not cheated of victory in Arizona's largest county in 2020. They reported it uh, this way. The uh, much uh, Republican review of Arizona vote fails to show stolen election. The much criticized review showed much the same result as in November with 99 more Biden votes and 261 fewer Trump ones. After months of delays and blistering criticism, a review of the 2020 election in Arizona's largest county ordered up and financed by Republicans has failed to produce any evidence that former President Donald J. Trump was cheated of victory. In fact, the draft report from the company Cyber Ninjas found just the opposite. It tallied 99 additional votes for Biden, 261 fewer for Trump. Mr. Biden won Arizona by roughly 10,500 votes, making Maricopa crucial to his win. The draft report, according to The Times, implicitly acknowledged Biden's victory, noting that there was that there were, quote, no substantial differences between its tally and votes of the official uh, and the official count by Maricopa County officials. But it also claimed that other factors, most if not all contested by reputable election experts, the New York Times snarked, left the uh, results, quote, very close to the margin of error for the election. Well, in fact, the, the close to margin of error for the election, that was the original results. It was a very close race in yeah. Arizona, which is why the county had already done uh, their own, uh, at least more limited post-election checks of ballots and machines long before the ninjas ran their hoax on Donald Trump supporters. The whole thing just reflects on the ninja's lack of understanding of Arizona election law and election administration procedures, said Benny White, a Republican in Tucson who is an advisor on election law and procedures. And instead of sorting them out with election officials, they made claims that election officials don't do things properly, said White. 
CNN reported long after midnight. Arizona election audit confirms Biden defeated Trump in Maricopa County last November. Local Phoenix NPR affiliate KJAZ reported that the report itself throws cold water on the grandest scheme of uh, on the grandest claims of fraud. And they go on to quote Randy Pullen. He's a spokesman for the election review who confirmed the validity of the draft reports and that the hand recount was, quote, relatively close to the official tally. Was there massive fraud or anything, he said? It doesn't look like it. And this guy, Pullen, according to my sources, according to my reporting, he was one of the biggest proponents on the ground in Phoenix of what the ninjas were actually doing. He was often muscling out the only... Uh, slightly more skeptical, Ken Bennett, the Republican former Arizona Secretary of State who had served as the GOP's uh, state Senate liaison to the so-called audit. Washington Post coverage late last night ended this way. Election experts said the Arizona experience should serve as a warning sign to other Republican legislators who have in recent weeks responded to pressure from Trump and agreed to embark on their own reviews of the 2020 election, including Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Texas. Yes, Texas, where Trump reportedly won by about 600,000 votes. Governor Greg Abbott seems to be agreeing to uh, waste Texas taxpayer money on something like this. All of those states are now planning to spend millions for similar exercises. And of course, I don't mind so long as they are overseen by the public, unlike what happened in Maricopa. But they seem to want to use the Cyber Ninja account as a model for their own tallies, despite the fact that, you know, because there was no public oversight by election officials, the county itself is now going to have to spend millions of additional dollars to replace all of those voting and tabulation computers. Since they are now presumed to have been corrupted after they were handed over to the ninjas and left, uh, you know, the official chain of, of, uh, of security and oversight by public officials. Every time Trump and his supporters have been given a forum to make their case, they have swung and missed, said Ben Ginsburg. Ben Ginsburg, identified by the Washington Post as uh, a Republican election lawyer who's been critical of Trump's false claims of fraud. Ben Ginsburg is the guy that helped Republicans use the U.S. Supreme Court to steal the election for George W. Bush back in 2000. Even Ben Ginsburg thinks what's going on here is nonsense and without evidence. If Trump and his supporters cannot prove it here, noted Ginsburg, with the with the process that they have designed, then they can't prove it anywhere, he said. Not that they won't keep trying, of course. And where noteworthy, we will share it with you as we will uh, share anything notable that comes out of the Cyber Ninjas Senate hearing on Friday. That said, as I noted, the video feed for the hearing uh, crapped out about a half hour, an hour ago, which I think may be a fitting end to a months long audit theater clown show, which also appears at this hour to have crapped out. But, Indeed. But if you listen to our previous broadcast, you already knew all of that before the rest of the country. So uh, with that said, I'm 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 loath to give this stuff any attention, and I only do so when it is absolutely necessary.
And one of the reasons uh, that I'm loath to give it the attention is that because all of this noise and nonsense is not only known already to be nonsense, but it is purposely meant to distract your attention from the fact that the Republican Party itself now has absolutely no governing agenda. None. Zero. And at a time when we really, really need them to. Because without action by all Americans at this point, this country, this planet, and frankly, humanity itself could be in very serious danger. More serious than even most climate scientists are willing to tell you. And to that end, NASA's Peter Kalmus joins us next for more reporting on the broadcast that you should be paying very close attention to. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the world-famous broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Don't play with me because you're playing with fire. Uh, yeah, we certainly are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Just over a week or so ago, uh, as we reported at the time, the United Nations issued a another dire report warning that even with the current pledges from the nations of the world to cut back on their carbon emissions, causing man-made global warming, we are still currently on course to reach a catastrophic 2.7 degrees Celsius rise in global average temperatures by the end of this century. The 2.7 degrees Celsius increase, that's almost 5 degrees Fahrenheit over pre-industrial times, is far above the 2 degrees Celsius increase that climate scientists have long advised we must stay below in order to stave off the very worst impacts of our worsening climate emergency, even as they urge the world, never mind two degrees, uh, stay below what seems now to be an impossible 1.5 degree rise. And yet, even with the current pledges by nations following the uh, Paris Climate Accord to cut carbon and methane from the atmosphere, we are far off course to keep humanity safe and our planet livable by centuries end, according to the scientists. That report last week, of course, comes on the heels of the recent long-awaited new assessment by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, warning that we are now at code red for humanity itself if swift and decisive action is not taken. And it was against that backdrop that the world leaders gathered at the U.N. General Assembly over the past week in New York City to address that crisis and many others in advance of the next World Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland, this November. President Biden, in his first address to the General Assembly at the end of another unprecedented season of climate disasters across the world this summer, called for a unified response to our climate emergency from the nations of the world while mentioning the word climate some 14 times in his 30-minute address to the General Assembly, his first as President of the United States on a number of pressing international matters. This year has also brought widespread death and devastation 
from the borderless climate crisis. The extreme weather events that we have seen in every part of the world, and you all know it and feel it, represent what the Secretary General has rightly called code red for humanity. And the scientists and experts are telling us that we're fast approaching a point of no return in a literal sense. To keep within our reach the vital goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, every nation needs to bring their highest possible ambitions to the table when we meet in Glasgow for COP26. And then to have to keep raising our collective ambition over time. In April, I announced the United States' ambitious new goal under the Paris Agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the United States by 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030 as we work toward achieving a clean energy economy with net zero emissions by 2050. Net zero emissions by 2050. That was President Biden at the U.N. this past week. Among the substantive new pledges to come out of the week's gathering, China has said that they will end investment in overseas coal uh, coal plants. That's noteworthy, as it's estimated right now that more than 70 percent of coal plants built uh, today around the world rely on Chinese funding. That doesn't mean that they will stop using coal back at home anytime soon, necessarily. On the other hand, however, while right-wing deniers of our climate crisis still cite China as failing to take action, despite being one of the world's largest emitters, in truth, the U.S. is still the world's top per capita emitter of dangerous greenhouse gases, China in recent years has far outpaced the U.S. in their investment into renewable energy such as solar and wind. Nonetheless, as the nations of the world try to move forward to combat this crisis and as fossil fuel funded Republican politicians here at home and yes, even some so-called moderate Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia coal country, as they continue to hamstring our efforts here in the U.S., even in the most optimistic outlook on our current trajectory, we may be in big, big trouble and much sooner than many understand. Earlier this year, President Biden vowed to cut greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. economy-wide by at least 50 percent by 2030. Moreover, he has pledged to set the nation on a course to reach full net zero emissions here by 2050, all of which uh, begins with the uh, landmark climate initiatives in his proposed three and a half trillion dollar Build Back Better program that Democrats in Congress right now continue to hash out for hopeful passage within the next several weeks. But again, in the very best case current scenario, if Democrats are able to overcome their internecine bickering and in particular somehow get West Virginia's Joe Manchin to play along, will any of these initiatives be enough to change our current code red trajectory? Some climate scientists we've spoken to on this program suggest that these actions will at least help to stave off the worst of climate impacts and certainly represent a good if long overdue start to tackle the climate emergency. 
But others, however, like Dr. Peter Kalmus, a NASA climate scientist writing recently in The Guardian, argues that these steps are not nearly enough to meet the moment. The world has, by and large, adopted net zero by 2050 as its de facto climate goal, writes Kalmus. But two fatal flaws hide in plain sight within those 16 characters. One is net zero. The other is by 2050. These two flaws, he goes on to argue, provide cover for big oil and politicians who wish to preserve the status quo. Together, they, com they comprise a deadly prescription for inaction and catastrophically high levels of irreversible climate and ecological breakdown. Really? They do? Net zero by 2050 certainly sounds, at least, like a very good idea and a very worthy goal for leaders of the world, but is it not nearly enough to meet the moment of this planetary crisis? Joining us now is Dr. Peter Kalmus of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, where his research employs satellite data to study our rapidly changing Earth. He's also the author of the award-winning book, Being the Change, Live Well and Spark, A Climate Revolution, offering real-life solutions for individuals to take action on global warming. In 2018, Dr. Kalmus was named to the respected Grist.org's annual Grist 50 list as one of 10 visionaries in the field. Dr. Peter Kalmus, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hi, thanks for having me. I should say that um, I'm speaking on my own behalf, of course. Of course, uh, not speaking on NASA's behalf, um, but maybe someday you will. We'll see how it goes. Uh, uh, other than the phrase, um, <laughs> than, than the phrases net zero and by 2050, Peter, the idea of net zero by 2050 sounds like a great idea. Let's hit each of those uh, flaws as you see them. It's, it's both not enough and it's too late. Um, well, in my opinion, yes, uh, both of those things are true. Um, you, you know, your, your summary was excellent, I, I thought. And um, maybe a few things that I left out. One thing is that um, I think that, in my, in my opinion, and um, mm -hmm. I think many of my colleagues would agree, uh, the climate science community is um, pretty surprised by how fast uh, climate breakdown is progressing um, mm -hmm. in terms of extreme heat, in terms of, you know, the, the extreme heat kicks off the mm -hmm. fires along with the extreme drought um, and in, in the western part of the U.S. Mm -hmm. and the, the extreme flooding that we've been seeing in the eastern part of the U.S. Um, all of this is coming a lot faster than we, we, I think we thought as a community. I think it's fair to say that. We, the predictions in terms of the global mean average surface temperature, uh, that's pretty much right on the money, but it, it seems like there's uh, physical processes, interconnections, um, you know, small regional temporal effects that might not be captured in the models. Mm -hmm. um, and in any case, uh, things are, um, there's, there's a general sense that things are happening faster than we thought. And yeah. In, in a sense, the uncertainty is not our friend. It's kind of one-sided, and there there might be uh, biases, for example, in the IPCC report, relying on net zero technologies that literally don't exist yet mm -hmm. um, to create scenarios and, uh, and emissions pathways for the future. Um, that seems, in my opinion, to be dangerously irresponsible. And then also, um, the whole idea of 
a, a kind of safe carbon budget or, you know, and the, the sort of other side of the coin, a safe threshold, whether that safe threshold is 2.2 uh, degrees Celsius mm -hmm. of mean global heating or 1.5 degrees Celsius of mean global heating. Um, I question that whole construction now. Um, I know as, as deci you know, decision makers need those kinds of goals to make plans. Mm -hmm. But as a climate scientist, I think we're already well into dangerous territory here, even though we're just approaching 1.2 degrees Celsius of global heating. 1.5 degrees, I think, is going to be worse than pretty much anyone thinks. Um, and I think two degrees would, would very likely be, um, the, the word catastrophic would be uh, not too much of an exaggeration for two degrees. That's that's my sense right now. Mm -hmm. Now that's uh, you know, admittedly a, a somewhat just kind of big picture, maybe a subjective sense of where we're at. Because of course, words like catastrophic and even words like dangerous, they're they're value judgments. Like you know, if if your if your house burns down, that's uh, that's maybe catastrophic to you. <laughs> your neighbor might disagree, right? So that's why that's basically why there's so much disagreement about the value part, but I see the coral reefs disappearing. I see the forest burning down. Um, I see people dying um, around the world, especially in the global south, but not limited to the global south any anymore. Um, and to me, we're already well into dangerous territory. So yeah, I, I think we need to go faster. Um, and I don't think that as a society, we've shifted into emergency mode. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the bottom line and what I was trying to say in that article. And um, is that there's still a sense maybe that um, you know all we need to do is build out a bit more renewable energy and everything's going to be fine. Um, that might have been the case in the 1990s, but it's not the case anymore. I, I think we're not yet treating this as an emergency as a society, and that's what we need to do is we need to make that shift. There's a couple of points you, you made there that I want to sort of underscore. One is that uh, things are right now worse than many scientists expected, and we've been sort of arguing for years you know, to counter the uh, denialists out there that, uh, you know, who, who call, you know, people like you uh, warmists and alarmists and so forth, that in fact, the material coming out from, you know, places like the IPCC has been rather conservative for many years. They also, you know, claim that, oh, these are just predictions. These are models, uh, you know, based on satellites and who knows where it's going to go. Well, we're beginning to get a better picture of that. It is... Uh, seemingly much worse than many predicted it would be. Also, I want to note that you you discuss discuss uh, there the the negative uh, the carbon tech that is built into the IPCC predictions. Yeah, that, the negative emissions technologies. Yeah. Explain that for me if you could. So um, there's a few different kinds of these negative emission technologies. The front runner is something called. Uh, bioenergy mm -hmm. carbon capture and storage or mm -hmm. BACs for short. The idea there is you plant trees and then you harvest the trees, you cut them down and you burn them for energy and, and you have technology that captures the carbon basically out of the smokestacks and then you, you lock that underground. So that's BACs. Um, and then there's also direct air capture, um, which is being tried out in a few pilot projects around the world. There, there's one in Iceland that just uh, came online a few weeks ago. It made big headlines. Um, the amount of carbon that it can sequester underground through direct air capture is approximately one ten millionth of what humanity emits. So um, if you let that plant, that new plant run for a year, mm -hmm. it'll take out about 
uh, three seconds worth of humanity's carbon emissions. So, so even when there's uh, in these IPCC reports, when they're uh, laying out these various uh, scenarios, potential scenarios, a lot of them seem to include some sort of carbon capture technology that will help reverse course. And, and these are technologies that A, either don't exist or B, where they do, they don't do much at all. And yet they are figured into these scenarios, as I understand it, that still end up being catastrophic in many ways. Does am, am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, well, so the, the problem is it's it you can't get to one point. You can't hold global heating to 1.5 degrees um, above pre-industrial levels um, without either going into emergency mode, which would mean in, in my mind, emergency mode just means uh, a much faster reduction of uh, fossil fuel use. And crucially, uh, an, an annual, like a year by year plan where you say, you know, well, policymakers say uh, they would have to have a plan. They would say, we're going to get, you know, we're going to reduce this, man this mm -hmm. many percentages by 2022, mm -hmm. this many by 2023. And we're going to do it by doing X, Y, and Z in each of those years, right? And then you, you have binding targets, you do those things, you make sure. And cr critically, it, it would mean that a lot of things in society would have to to change pretty drastically and quickly. Um, when when there's an emergency, you don't just typically keep doing what you were doing. Like if you were watching Netflix in your house and your house is on fire, on fire, that's an emergency. You don't just stay in there and keep watching Netflix. You you know call nine one. You uh -huh. run outside. You start to get the garden hoses. You start yelling for your neighbors to come help, whatever. But that, that's emergency mode. You don't just keep doing what you're doing. Um, and but to, to get to, to keep it below 1.5 without that kind of a shift into emergency mode, you need these um, technologies uh, that don't exist today that you would need to massively scale up. There's no, no one knows how to do that scale up. And even in the best case, it would be massively expensive. So then uh, basically policymakers today are saddling uh, young people to, you know, somehow magically come up with this tech mm -hmm. and then pay for it all tomorrow, even while they're dealing with uh, the, the kinds of emergencies we're dealing with today that we saw in the summer of 2021. Yep. But multiply that by a large factor. They'll be dealing with yeah. all of that. And, and yeah, it's not it's deeply irresponsible to young people. You note in your uh, in, uh, an important point in your Guardian piece, um, uh, Dr. Peter Kalmus writing a quote, it should tell us all we need to know about net zero by 2050, that it is supported by fossil fuel executives and that climate uber villain uh, Rupert Murdoch has embra embraced it through his News Corp Australia mouthpiece. Is, is this akin, as you see it, to the years where, you know, companies like ExxonMobil uh, have been pretending for quite some time that they are calling for a carbon tax, knowing damned well that it would be virtually impossible to adopt one in at least the U.S. Congress. So, you know, why not sound like they're actually in favor of an important, you know, uh, a sound climate initiative by calling for one? Is that what you see uh, when you see even these fossil fuel companies calling for net zero by 2050? Yeah, that's that's precisely my interpretation. Um, 2050 is comfortably far in the future. It means that you don't have to start coming up with things. You don't have to actually do anything today, right? Mm -hmm. You just say, oh, well, we'll deal with that sometime in the future. Well, 
Um, and then net zero means they can keep on burning fossil fuels. Right? Well, uh, we'll, we'll figure out some magical technology to deal with the results of that later. Right. Uh, in, in the more immediate future, however, as you know, as, as our listeners know, there's this raging battle ongoing right now among Democrats, actually more accurately between the uh, nearly united bulk of the uh, uh, Democratic caucus in Congress and a small handful of so-called moderate Democrats, two in the Senate, less than a dozen in the House. Um you know, over passage of Biden's Build Back Better agenda, which currently in, currently includes some landmark initiatives to combat climate change. Most notably, uh, it calls for, uh, as Joe Biden has, for a reduction of emissions in the electricity sector of some 80 percent by 2030 and 100 percent by 2035. That's actually a remarkably short timeline, it seems to me, to accomplish that. But in the best case scenario, uh, the, the Democrats, uh, you know, supporting the if they support the president's agenda here, if this wins the day, do those goals actual are they actually a doable and b if we meet them, are you suggesting that even that would not be enough to at least put us on the course that we need to be on? Well, again, so I think you set up well in your introdu introduction. Um, those those plans are, you know, would likely bring us somewhere in the range of 2.4 to 2.7 degrees Celsius of global heating. Um, in my opinion, that's far into the red territory, mm -hmm. and that's that's you know, I, I I think that as as the years progress and you know the summers get increasingly horrific um, and larger number of people start dying in humid heat waves for mm -hmm. example um the the what seems politically um feasible and what the public is demanding is going to change qu quite rapidly is mm -hmm. my that's my um that's kind of, that's what i that's what i think we're heading towards as a climate scientist it just from where i'm sitting it's absolutely tragic that it took the emergency um itself to be here to manifest yeah. in in the real world and to to kill people and to be this severe and to take out so many ecosystems when we were we were essentially predicting all of this decades ago yeah. though again like it seems like in terms of yeah, the heat waves and some of the other impacts we underestimated them somewhat but that's where we are now you, you, and now it's immediate for people you call for the uh, global uh, zero emissions goal now to be set no later than 2035, never mind 2050, but 2035, presuming the nations of the world all agree. Is that even possible, Peter? Uh, that's I mean, that's less than 15 years to completely change. Uh, well, the you know, the bedrock energy structure of civilization itself, planet wide, even if we put our, our, our minds to this, could it be done? Um, I think it would be totally possible. Yeah. Um, again, we, it's just, we're, we're, we're squabbling, we're divided. Um, there's been no will to act on this at all. Um, you know, look at what humanity did in World War II, for example, when there was an immediate threat, a kind of threat that, mm. uh, you know, our brains are wired to respond to rapidly and with, um, you know, on a massive scale. Like we took that seriously. As a society, we have not even started taking climate and ecological breakdown seriously yet. So, so I think once we do that, if we really shift collectively into an emergency mindset um, where we start uh, shifting precious fossil fuels 
uh, towards sort of more life support type things like mm. the food system, for example, and less into conspicuous consumption things like giant SUVs and frequent flying, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and, you know, then if we, we, we realize that this one industry, the fossil fuel industry, is irreversibly changing the only habitable planet we know of in the universe, our, our only home, mm. um, then maybe we would start doing things that seem kind of radical today such as nationalizing the industry. I, I think it's a crime that as a society, we still allow these fossil fuel barons and executives to keep um, taking obscene profits literally from the destruction of our collective future. Um, so, you know, we should immediately seize those assets, in my opinion, mm. uh, basically seize the fossil fuel industry. That's a collective asset that we need right now. We still need to burn some fossil fuel to enact this transition. But, but that should be in the control mm. of the people, which basically means the government. Um, and then that would allow us to do things like start rationing it and ramping it down. Um, but then the other big piece is we would need some international treaties uh, for, for doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the part that has me really concerned, is that we don't really know how to work on this t together as a group of nations on one planet. Yeah, even if we come around in this country, uh, we're only one part of the world, albeit a large part of the problem. Uh, Peter, I got sort of two more. Well, actually, one more question, and a two part question. Climate emergency mode, you write uh, at The Guardian, will require personal sacrifice, especially from the high emitting rich. But civilization collapse would be unimaginably worse, you write. In fact, I believe you wrote a book about exactly that, being the change, live well and spark a climate revolution. So two questions on this point. Uh, one, not to start a fight between you and, and fellow climate scientists, but we've interviewed folks like, you know, Dr. Michael Mann, Dr. Leah Stokes, who suggest that actually we can take the steps to right this ship without the major personal sacrifice that you talk about in your book. Two, we've noticed of late that the fossil fuel industry seems to be shifting blame from themselves to to us, to you, to the individuals, uh, to what individuals are doing, that it's all our fault. We need to, to, to change. We need to uh, change what we are doing in order to save the planet. None of this is really their fault. It's our use of the energy. Are, are you feeding into their uh, propaganda in that regard, uh, albeit not on purpose? Uh, not, not and, at all. and two, do yeah, you disagree with your fellow uh, scientists like Mann and, and Stokes, who says we, we can do this? Well, 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 first, we, we can do it, but I, again, like I've said, I don't think we're going to be able to do it uh, to avoid. I, there's a trade-off between how hot we let the planet get and mm -hmm. um, how much we keep our lives looking just like they are now. And um, I think it's uh, very, very dangerous to assume that, um, you know, every tenth of a degree of global heating is going to be sort of not more serious than the last. And mm. I, I think what I guess what I'm saying is that I think that we're already at the point where we're starting to maybe see that the trade off is, is going more on the side of a fast drawdown. Mm. And I'm absolutely not expecting people to voluntarily make these changes. Um, that doesn't work. Um, you know, there's just not enough people willing to do that. So we need um, massively quick systemic change. But if we look at the fossil fuel that we're burning and we're trying to minimize it, I think we'll very quickly see that there's some low hanging fruit there 
and uh, the very wealthy people who you know are flying 100,000 miles a year, for example. Mm -hmm. And we should start, you know, through policies, not by asking them politely, but we should start making that not a thing anymore um, as a society. Um, and that sounds, that might sound um, like a, you know a little too radical to some of your listeners. But I would say uh, my, my response to them would be that they haven't fully understood just what an emergency we're in or just how irreversible the damage that yeah. we're doing and leaving to future generations is going to be. And once more people start understanding that, um, what everything I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, to I, I see what's coming in the future years mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to get people to respond now to what yeah. I know is coming in the future years. Yeah. And that's really hard. I take a lot of criticism for that. But, but I know I'm right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I keep trying to do it. And recent years have, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, when I was saying similar things, but it wasn't so immediate to people, um, no one was listening. And, and recent years have kind of started to shift that balance. And, and um, you know, it's just basic physics and it's continuing as we continue to emit these greenhouse gases. So I can say with complete confidence that in the coming years, um, what I'm saying now, that sounds radical to people, will not seem radical anymore. <laughs> and I wish they would just listen to what I'm saying now so we could we could stave <laughs> off some of the damage and the suffering and the death. Oh, I, I hear you. Uh, you write in conclusion in your Guardian piece, policy steps that seem radical today, for example, proposals to nationalize the fossil fuel industry and ration oil and gas supplies will seem less radical with each new climate disaster. Climate emergency mode will require personal sacrifice, especially from the high emitting rich. But civilization, civilizational collapse would be unimaginably worse as a, client, as a climate scientist, you write, I am terrified by what I see coming. I want world leaders to stop hiding behind magical thinking and feel the same terror. Then they would finally end fossil fuels. Well, in one sense, Peter, I hope you are right. And in another sense, of course, I hope you are completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> I hope I'm wrong, too. It just seems yeah. less likely with every passing day. <laughs> exactly. That's my terror. My terror is that you are not wrong. Dr. Peter Kalmus, you can find him on the Twitters at Climate Human. You can also find his work at peterkalmus.net. He is the author of the book, Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. He's also the, the founder of climateadproject.org, which we didn't get to talk about uh, today, but maybe we'll be able to do that in the future. Uh, they work to create and place ads that raise awareness about the climate crisis and solutions, though it seems that the climate itself may be raising the, the awareness we need these days. Dr. Kalmus, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast. All right. Thanks for having me. You Bye. bet. All right. Quick break. And Oh, let's lighten things up on the way out, <laughs> shall we? Yes. I think we could all use it. Uh, that's right ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Well, this gives me that peaceful, easy feeling <laughs> that I was looking for. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, to sort of help us out here uh, feel a little bit better, because I need it, uh, we have this 
Who's this from? This is from the Jimmy Kimmel Show when they did Climate Night on the late night shows on Wednesday, September 22nd. When they all did it all on the same day, right? Yep. You know, if they all did it on different days, maybe more people would be able to see it. Just saying. Anyway, Kimmel offered this. At ConocoPhillips, we drill oil in the most inhospitable places on Earth, from the baking desert to the frozen tundra. And when burning that oil causes the tundra to become unfrozen, we don't give up. We refreeze that tundra using giant chillers. And when burning the oil to power the chillers causes catastrophic hurricanes and flooding, we don't back down. We build a humongous impenetrable dome over our drills and move inside with all our money. Food runs low, but we don't quit. We turn to cannibalism, feasting on human flesh to keep on drilling until the Earth's destroyed and everyone's dead. But do we quit then? Yes. Then I guess we quit. ConocoPhillips. Maybe we didn't think this through. <laughs> well, we do appreciate your honesty. <laughs> there you go. Jimmy Kimmel on the uh, the late night uh, super duper late show, whatever the heck they call Kimmel show. All right. We got to get out. My thanks to uh, my guest today, NASA's Dr. Peter Kalmus, and to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day with us. It is always greatly appreciated if you missed any portion of today's show or any other. Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. Uh, oh, and we rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Okay, that's it, right? Yes, that's it. Uh, on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog, and I will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.